0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 3. Bible's in your seat, you can find that on page 352. 2 Samuel 3, verses 1 through 11, this is God's Word. Now, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons born to David and Hebron. His first son was Amnon by Ahanom, the Jezreelitist. His second, Chileab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth Ethriim by David's wife Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone in to my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ish-bosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner and more also I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. It's hard to wait, isn't it? I think the children understand this. If you have something special next week, maybe it's your birthday next week and you think next week will never come. It's hard to wait, isn't it? Adults know this too. Something good is around the corner and maybe more likely you're Enduring something hard. And it's hard to wait. Abner was a man who is consumed by ambition. And ambition pulls the rug under out from under a person who is trying to wait. His ambition drove him to reject David as the true and rightful king ordained by God to rule over not only the house of Judah, but all of the tribes of Israel. Not only did Abner reject David and set up a rival king, he also fought against David. He invaded Judah to fight against David and his soldiers. And his rebellion just goes from bad to worse. There is a downward spiral that chapter 3 describes. It tells how after trying to establish the kingdom through warfare against the Philistines and against David, that now he turns his plots to achieving power by his own craftiness. He vainly tried to grab after this by political plotting, but at the same time, he does not succeed. David grows stronger and stronger, and Abner and the house of Saul grows weaker and weaker. It's a part of the history of redemption that provides some positive and negative examples about waiting on the Lord. They can be applied to. Uh, to national interests, as we will see in this passage, but we can also say that it applies to individuals as well. Lesson of waiting upon the Lord. So for a summary today of this message, I'll warn you that selfish ambition leads to destruction. Therefore, wait on the Lord. Let me take some time to define what it means to wait on the Lord. Verse 1 seems a little bit like a transition sentence, and transition sentences, are you can kind of throw them away and pass over. But I want you to pause here because it gives an insightful evaluation of what is happening in the nation of Israel at this time. Without much detail, it says there was much more, much more war, and then it says that David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Now, as I've already pointed out, this follows right on the heels of Abner's failed attempt to invade, invade Judah. And we saw last week how the commander of David's armies, Joab, had a clear victory. And he could have pursued that victory even further and uh, pursued Abner and his, his soldiers and and. and Really wipe them out completely. But Joab didn't do that. He relented and he withdrew from the battle. Which poses a question: well, why would Joab do that? The answer lies in David's character. A character that the authors of first and second Samuel have been building and building and building to this point where David assumes his position as king. David begins to project that godly character onto all of his rule. And here's how it plays out in this situation. Even though Abner had invaded and deserved the defeat he got, uh, David was right in fighting a war of self-protection. But Still, even though that happened, David would not turn around and slaughter them, which would have been the common practice of battles of that day. If If the enemy is running, what do you do? Well, you chase them down and you finish the job. But David didn't do that. All throughout the account of David, we've been seeing a certain pattern to the way He conducts himself. He follows the Lord. He waits on him. He had waited years to receive the kingdom, and it's still not completely in his hands. But over and over again, he restrained his hand when it came to these opportunities to kill Saul. He was not going to grasp after that. He was not going to take matters into his own hands. This is his M.O., we might say. So in this case, here are invaders, but the invaders are also children of Israel, part of the people of God. And to fight ruthlessly against them was to turn his hand against God's larger intended purposes that the Lord would bless the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that from them come the Savior, Jesus Christ. So David restrains his hand against the armies of, uh, of Abner. This provides a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, and it provides principles of godly conduct for us to follow as well. I want to pause here and just think about how David reflects Jesus as he waits upon the Lord. Jesus is God, always has been, he always will be. But even though Jesus is God, as Philippians 2 says, he did not consider it, uh, did not consider equality with God something to grasp after. Instead, he humbled himself, even to the point of becoming a man, even to the point of becoming a servant, even to the point of laying down his life for the children that the Lord was saving. There were temptations that he faced to grasp after the kingdom, to, in a sense, take matters into his own hands. Just think of the temptations that Satan brought to Jesus in the wilderness. One of them was, look at all of the kingdoms of the earth. I will give them all to you if you will just bow down to me. It was a temptation for Jesus to achieve the kingdom without the cross. And that was not the way of the kingdom of God. He would wait upon the Lord. He would wait upon the purposes of the Lord. He would achieve what the Father had sent the Son to do. And so he humbled himself, becoming even that sacrificial lamb who died on the cross for our sins. And as you think about that humility, it it just rings throughout all of Jesus' life. And I'll just call your attention to one other place. As Jesus entered Jerusalem on that fateful weekend where he knew that he would die, that he would suffer the wrath of the Father against him, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But not my will will but your will be done. Can you hear that humility? Can you hear how he is resting in the Father's plan for this purpose to take place? And David foreshadows this. I'll develop this more throughout the rest of the text, but let me also now not only point your, direct, your eyes to Jesus, but point out how, how you too are a follower of Jesus Christ. Even as David was following after the Lord and resting in him, you are his disciple. And part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is is to wait upon the Lord, to orient your life so that it is God who is leading, not you. And isn't that the temptation? Temptation. Isn't that the temptation that I've been describing for Abner, to grasp after these things, to take matters into his own hands, to try to accomplish purpose or power by his own ingenuity, by his own plotting? You and I do the same thing when we lose sight of who our true leader is, and we take it into our own hands to try to accomplish the purposes that we think is best. So out of dependence upon him, you shape your life and your desires around his purposes. And as I say that, I hope that it it informs that Christian practice of devotions. It may be that you, you go about your devotions as kind of habits. This is what a Christian does. I want to... I want to enliven your devotion to seeing it as part of waiting upon the Lord. You go to meet with your Savior day by day and to listen to what he has to say to you by reading his word. You go there not to check a box, but to, uh, but to have conversation with him, to hear as he speaks and to speak back to him in your prayers. You express your, your dependence and Your submission of all of your life, then, arranging it under his purposes. You wait upon the Lord. David gives such a great example of this, a positive example of waiting upon the Lord. But he also gives us a negative example, which is my second point. David did grow stronger, as verse 1 describes. But he grew stronger through the alliances that he established by all of the women he married. Now, this would have been a common practice in the ancient world. It's, It's still a practice today that allegiances and powerful families are made through marriages. But what David did, and was common in the ancient world, was that David took many wives to himself. You can trace some of them and you can find some political advantages that would be established through this marriage. And included in this projection of alliance and projection of power, there's a listing of the sons that are born to David because of this. Another sign from a human perspective of of power and of strength and of the establishment of a kingdom but god forbids polygamy god forbids it and here as as the author of second samuel relates you need to be careful and connecting David's growing stronger and stronger with somehow this being okay, being a righteous act. Instead, the rest of David's story, the rest of God's word critiques what David did. And I would point it out as David's weakness, David's sinful seeking human paths to establish the kingdom rather than waiting upon the Lord. And I can say that because all you have to do is to go through the rest of 2 Samuel. We're going to find this out. Look at the sons that are named here. And I'll just give you a a tagline for each of them and note the sorrow that comes because of David's many marriages, Amnon, who raped his half-sister, Tamar, and doing that created a blood feud with his half-brother, Absalom. What do we know of Absalom? Well, Absalom plots and he kills Amnon, bloodshed enters into the family. And then Absalom goes from bad to worse. He plots a military and political coup against his father, and he almost succeeds. And Adonijah, another one who led a rebellion against David's plan of succession, this time after David died, but he did rebel against his father in this way. When David multiplied wives, he multiplied trouble. It's wise to underline this fact. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but an appropriate time for me to say again that God forbids polygamy. And I say that, and I I want to give just a few sentences about this because polygamy is the next pillar of Christian marriage that is going to tumble. As our culture strikes down all of those definitions of biblical marriage, one after another, after another pillar has fallen. And have you noticed that on movies or in TV programs that you begin to see how multiple marriages are being portrayed as good things? It is not. Even common sense argues against it, doesn't it? (laughs) I I mean, uh, Solomon, the wisest man in the world, uh, has a thousand wives and concubines. And that's one of those head scratchers that surely that was a recipe for disaster and contention and... (laughs) And all sorts of problems. I've pointed out how it was for David. Because common sense argues against it. But it's worse than common sense. God forbids it. Polygamy is a sin. John Calvin argues this way. He says that it is inherently abusive to women. So think about that when you think you're liberating and finding freedom pursue whatever you want, it is inherently abusive to women, as is so many of the sexual freedoms that we are pursuing today. When you unhitch your life from Jesus, when you unhitch your life from God's word, you will, will multiply trouble and multiply sins. And unfortunately, David was caught up in it. Now, God is gracious. We know that the Lord loved David. He called him a man after God's own heart. A man after my own heart, says the Lord. That does not mean that the Lord condoned David's polygamy. It does not mean that it condoned any of David's sin. It doesn't mean that David was perfect in following after the Lord far from it what it does show is that the Lord is faithful in our salvation that the Lord shows a faithful and steadfast love to sinners and that that is our own uh, that is our only hope to be saved from our sins God would keep his promise that he had made to David, that he would establish him as king. And we keep that larger, that larger promise that we'll hear in just a few chapters that a son would rise from the line of David to rule over the people of God forever and ever. It's another one of those promises of Jesus Christ. So, Under this heading, David's growing stronger and stronger through alliance, be careful in understanding David's action here. He did strengthen his position, but he was impatient. And his plan had bad results in the end. Well, Abner tried to strengthen his position as well, didn't he? This is the third point of this message. Abner grew weaker. He tried to to strengthen his position, and his attempts attempts lead to just this this further downward spiral, is what I'm calling it. A further downward spiral into, into more and more blindness as to what he was doing as he was fighting against David and fighting against God himself. And Abner grows weaker in his positions, both in, in, a, in human perspective and in God's perspective as well. So if you look at verse 6, it says he was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. Now we saw in the last chapter that Ishbosheth was king, but Abner is the true power here, isn't he? And to strengthen his hold, Absalom also did something that would have been common in his day. I said that David's multiple wives would have been common. But here, Absalom does this. He took one of Saul's concubines and slept with her. This is almost like an animal, isn't it? So in the ancient world, if a, king, if a king defeated another nation, he would signal his victory. He would signal his power by going into the harem, for lack of a better word, the, the wives and concubines of the defeated king, and he would sleep with them. Like an animal marking his territory, isn't it? Animal saying, I'm the boss here. Mishrosheth understood it, right? That's what he says. When Abner took Saul's concubine Rizpah, Abner was signaling his desire to be king. And Ishbosheth said, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? In other words, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? And here's a confrontation that, that comes from Abner's political power move. Ishbosheth was accusing him, and Abner responds with temper and with other accusations. Because he couldn't allow Ishbosheth to gain the upper hand in this case. So in verses 8 through 11, Abner rants and then he threatens another alliance to, to gain power. He would shift his support from Ishbosheth back to David. Let me just walk through the words that are here to, to some things that would be good to understand. He says, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? To call someone a dog's head would have been a huge insult. So Abner, in a sense, pours forth. Gasoline on the fire of this accusation that Ishbosheth has made against him and returns it and makes the, the situation even worse with his anger and with this slur. Today, I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to his friends. I showed loyalty to you. I could have delivered you to David, but I didn't. And what do you do? You accuse me of this? See how the anger gets even more nasty as Abner claims his upright position. He's done something good and noble. He's protected Ishbosheth. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? A common tactic. Abner pursues here. You notice that he didn't deny what he did. He could have at this point. Oh, you're mistaken. I, I didn't do that. You're the king. I'm. I'm not claiming any authority here. He could have been humble, and uh, and shown respect to Ishbosheth as a king. But that's not what he does here. Places the blame and shifts it back on Ishbosheth as if he was in the wrong for accusing him of doing whatever he wanted with this woman. May God do so to Abner and more if I don't do something about this. What is Abner doing doing here? Well, The words here in the text make it plain that he is making an oath before God. This is a serious thing. May may God do so to me. You might have a sense of this from a practice that used to be part of our legal system. Place your hand on the Bible. You raise your hand and say, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And Abner invokes God's name. He abuses God's name, taking it in vain to bind him to an oath unless he would, uh, would do something about this. And what would he do? May God do so to Abner if I do not do for David what the Lord has sworn to him. Transfer the kingdom from Saul to David. And all of the nation, from Dan to Beersheba, that's from north to south, all of the tribes coming to David. And what's funny about this is that only now does Abner Invoke God's promise to David. That should have been his posture all along. Remember how Jonathan, David's son, treated David? The one who was in line to be king? He said, no, you are going to be king. I will serve you. I will follow you. Jonathan was... Aligning himself under the promises of God. What did Abner do? <laughs> Not David, me. Through Ishbosheth to begin with, but even more and more, Abner was promoting himself to be the power in Israel against David. And it's only now as Yisrocheth is catching wind of what's going on, that Abner threatens to shift allegiance to the one that God had anointed to be king. Uh, call it funny, but it's more tragic. He had schemed and he had fought against David when it seemed to be his best, best path to power. But now that that's failed, he's going to shift his allegiance Back to David. We'll see more about that next week. For now, what he does with Ishbosheth is he makes a threat to throw his weight behind David. And believe me, it is a threat. This is a deadly power play that Abner is involved in. It says that Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Isn't this what happens when a person strays from God, when a nation rebels against him? Instead of submitting to the Lord, a nation descends into this endless turmoil under the rule of whoever is the strongest. Then sooner or later, the strong man has to resort to violence to keep his power. And that works for a time, doesn't it? Until the next strong man comes along and knocks him from the throne. A nation that denies God is a nation doomed to descend into such turmoil. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to its people. Every move that Abner has made has this subtext that points to his own selfish ambition. He did it for himself, for his own kingdom, not for the good and the glory of God, not for the establishment of his kingdom. But as the Bible says and as history confirms, the wicked fall into the pit that they have dug, they fall into it themselves. And here you see Abner plotting and fighting and maneuvering for his own advantage, really to the demise of the nation and to his own despair. And it all starts to slip away. Well, Abner does have one more card to play. And as I said, we'll turn to that next week. As I've applied this to nations, I want to close with one more application. This can be similarly applied to you. Once more, I like how Calvin puts this. It says, thus, when we see that God reproves his enemies and those who despise his majesty, let us fear becoming like them, since the Holy Scripture so frequently warns us against this. The warning is that selfish ambition is destructive, self-destructive. You think that you're promoting yourself. You think you're protecting yourself. But it is, in the end, self-destructive. You will not get away with it. Because you're fighting against God. And that's what Abner did. He wars against David and he wars against God. And his ambition blind, blinded him. From God's word, his promises to David, and his covenant goodness. And what it does for you is it does the very same thing. Your selfish ambition blinds you to God's word. It blinds you to Christ himself. And it leads you on a path of self-destruction. You may think that you're protecting and promoting your own good name and your own reputation... You may even think that you're furthering the work of the church or the work of the nation. But if you do not pursue God's kingdom and you do not pursue it in God's way, it is a pursuit of your own kingdom. You'll pursue it to your destruction. Remember those words uh, of the Psalms, and of many other places that say that the Lord will cause you to fall into the pit that you have dug yourself. So today, I've pointed out the dangerous path of self-ambition, of blinding yourself to the purposes of God, of his kingdom, and to see that, uh, that there is destruction that comes from that. And the positive thing is you put off selfish uh, selfish desires. And what is it that you put on? Wait upon the Lord. Say it again. Wait upon the Lord. Interestingly, those are David's own words in Psalm 27. Saying that earlier. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Recognize that God often shapes the details of your life to test your faith, to purify it, to teach you what it means to wait, to rest in the promises of God, in His purposes. So say one more time wait on the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, so often we would prefer our own way. And so often we turn from that straight and narrow path to play God himself. We think we know better than you. We think we know what is good for us. We think we know how to get it and how to go about our lives. Instead, O oh Lord, I pray that we would indeed learn to wait upon you. And Lord, as our faith is stretched by the circumstances of this life, I pray that you would teach us to wait. I pray that you would give us grace to, uh, to patiently look to you and to order our lives under your hand, under our Savior Jesus, under your gracious purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sing the second half of Psalm 57 now. We ask the Lord to teach us his ways, to show us his mercy. And the psalm closes with a, a, an exaltation of the Lord's glory. And I love that as part of our expression of waiting on the Lord. It's not me, God, but you that are to be exalted. It's not me that needs the first place, it's you. Oh, be exalted high, O oh God. Psalm 57b, let's stand to sing.